Okay, so we're carrying on our study through the book of First Kings. It's a, a great book because I suppose like so many others in the Bible, it very much acts like a mirror. Uh, it just reflects our own lives. It reflects the, the triumphs but also the tragedies, the moments when things are going well but also the moments when we lose our footing, when we lose our way and uh, when we sadly at times take out our, kind of our, our steps out of God's steps when we walk in our own paths and not his. So uh, we're going to carry on looking at exactly that this morning. So let's just bow our hearts before we uh, turn to the pages, shall we? Well, Father, we just commit this time of study to you. We ask that you speak to us now through your spirit. Father, we want to know more of you. But Lord, we also recognize that we need to understand, Lord, our own sinful nature. And just, Lord, how quickly... It is that the flesh would run after the things of this world. And Lord, forsake all that we know of you. Lord, help us to understand that we need to daily walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Lord, help us to realize, Lord, that the weight that so easily, the sin which so easily ensnares us, Lord, is like a weight that pulls us down. But if we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, then we can walk the path that's set before us in truth. Lord, without wavering, hoping and trusting in you. So Lord, please speak to us this morning, we pray, and just impress these things upon our hearts. Lord, as we just turn to your word now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've seen already then the kingdom, as it was the Israel under David, um, then passes to Solomon, the height of the kingdom is a wonderful thing. But then we move to the time after Solomon. God has said because of Solomon's iniquity, because he followed and went after strange women, we're told, uh, simply foreign wives, wives that didn't love the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And they pulled his heart away from God. As a result of this, God says that he would rend the kingdom from David. But he would leave a remnant. Um, we're left, of course, with the tribe of Judah and uh, Benjamin also included within that. If you look on a map, uh, the area down here is Judah and Benjamin is just a small little piece of land uh, that's here. And then we have this dividing line. Above this, we have all of the northern tribes, the northern kingdom as it becomes known, which then, under the rule of Jeroboam, effectively go off into iniquity. The southern kingdoms, while well, we see Rehoboam, Solomon's son, effectively are now becoming kind of the king over just these two tribes. The Lord allows just this small portion to be left as a posterity to David because of, because of the promise that God had made to David that he would always have a king to sit on, a, a descendant uh, that would sit on the throne. Ultimately, of course, that will be fulfilled in the Messiah, uh, who's from the line of uh, the tribe of Judah, uh, or son of David, as he's referred to in Scripture as well. Um, and so Jeroboam ends up setting up two places, one in Dan at the top here, uh, centers of worship, and another one in Bethel, which is down the bottom here. And we look, um, what Rehoboam did is draw the nation together at this place Shechem here. Shechem, as we mentioned previously, was a very important place for the nation. It had been where, well, a number of events had occurred, but it's where Joshua then uh, ratifies or confirms the covenant that God had made with them. Uh, once they'd left Egypt and wandering through the wilderness, they finally come into the land, and God says to Moses that they're to come to this place. And so Joshua now leads the people in. They come to this place of Shechem, and then they have these two mountains, they're Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And so half of the tribes climb up Mount Gerizim, and they proclaim there the blessings that God has promised upon the nation if they obey. 
But the other half of the nation climb up Mount Ebal and they proclaim all the, all the curses if Israel disobey. And so it's a very uh, shrewd move in a sense by Rehoboam. What he's trying to do is to remind the people of their common history and heritage. The fact that they are one people. They've gone through so much together. And bring them back to this place where they had, uh, in a sense, confirmed their covenant with God in the hope that he would unite the nation under him. But of course, he doesn't, because he takes the counsel of the young men that he's grown up with, not relying on the wisdom of the older men. As we said before, it's not necessarily an age thing, it's about where the source of that wisdom comes from. And if that wisdom is from God, then we rely on it. If it's the wisdom of the world, well, then we discard it. Um, But he nevertheless took the advice of his young uh, friends, and ends up being very harsh towards the people. And that leads uh, the people to effectively enthrone Jeroboam, just as had been prophesied. You see, Jeroboam had had this prophecy spoken over him by this prophet Abijah, who we're going to see again in a moment. And as a result of this, um, he'd end up, Solomon got to hear of it, he'd fled during the time of Solomon, but once Solomon then dies and Rehoboam is now on the throne, then uh, this individual Jeroboam comes back from Egypt where he'd been in exile effectively. But we see this individual Jeroboam given this great opportunity to be king and to have a lasting dynasty. This is what God had promised him. This is God that had appointed him. And it could have been such a wonderful story from this point for this individual. But of course, it was the fear of man that led him to sin. And there are so many examples of this that we see in Scripture. You may have seen the blog that I put up on the website a week or so ago, that quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And then just quoting and saying, Blessed is everyone that fears the Lord. You know, that's so true in the verse that Jared shared with us this morning as well. You know, we need to have that fear of the Lord. If we fear God, we won't fear other things. But Jeroboam here, so concerned that the people would end up going back down to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts of Israel as had been uh, ordained in the law of Moses. And thinking that if they go back there, well, then they might want to stay there. And they may kind of question, why do we need two kings anyway? And so because of this, he ends up setting up these two centers of worship. Uh, one, as I've said already, in Dan up the north and one in Bethel, in kind of the southern area of the northern kingdom. And he also makes these golden calves and places one in each place. You know, you'd think that somebody familiar with Israel's history would know better. Because, of course, this is what Aaron does after they've left Egypt. They're at the base of Sinai. You know, God has just already shown them in numerous ways how he's protecting them and providing for them. And then Moses, for 40 days and 40 nights, goes up the mountain um, to receive the instructions about the tabernacle and the law and all these kind of things that Moses received. And while he's up there, the people get restless, don't they? It says in Proverbs, where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. You know, we need often something to aim at. We need a goal. We need an objective. Uh, even in our spiritual lives, it's no good just wandering aimlessly. This is why we've been given prophecy. Prophecy isn't there just to, to, to be kind of something that's titillating, that's exciting. You know, it's, it's far more than something that just stirs us. It's something that gives us a real focus, knowing that the Lord is going to bring these things to pass that we read of in his word. And that should be something that gives us a real focus in our lives. It's you know, the reason that we're told so many times in Scripture, and uh, Peter emphasizes it in the New Testament, amongst others, but that we should be holy. 
You know, without understanding God and all that God has for us, all that is yet to come, it's very difficult to live a holy life. Because if it's just about waking up and going through the routines of our days, then it's very, very difficult to be holy. But when we know that this world is not all there is, there is so much more. As I've said before, when I was younger, um, and um, kind of in my teenage years, and uh, my sister Katie, mum and dad sometimes went away on holiday, and uh, they would take Sim, my younger brother, with them, um, and uh, they'd leave Katie and I at home to look after the house. If you're parents and you've got children, maybe you've done this if they're old enough, you know. And of course, the house would, over the course of you know, say a week, two weeks, just get a little bit more. Uh, um, uh, ruffled, shall we say. Um, and so we get to that stage, you know, they're coming home on the Saturday and it's Friday and I'd look at Katie and Katie would look at me and there's that kind of like dawn, that realisation dawns of, uh-oh, uh, we've got to sort this out. And we then suddenly set about trying to get the place tidy and we clean everything up and mum and dad would walk back in and they go, oh, this is clean. <laughs> you should have seen it yesterday. You know, but it, you've got a reason. There's a reason to do it. This is why... We're told that the crown of righteousness is promised to those that love his appearing. You see, because if you love the fact that Jesus is coming, if you're living your life in expectation that Jesus is coming, you're not going to allow yourself to get sidetracked with the things of this world. You know, as um, Moses, when we read in Hebrews, was, was, had that opportunity, that temptation of the pleasure of sin for a season. But he rejected that because of a, a realisation that there was something more, something better. And unfortunately for Jeroboam here, he doesn't have that kind of focus. And he's concerned that the people, as I say, are going to end up getting back down to Jerusalem and he's going to lose his control. So out of fear, he makes these golden calves. And it's just amazing that people can worship something made with hands. And uh, we see, see so much of this in the world, people creating their own gods. And we would think, of course, how, how ridiculous to worship something made of, of gold. It just, you know, and yet we worship things made of metal and plastic and all sorts of things, don't we, in our lives? You know, things that, that just take our time and attention and our energies and they become so important to us. But you know, even here with, with these golden calves, they're, they're, they're still calling them God. and They're trying to attribute some sort of divine power to these things. It's just so, so ludicrous. But of course we know in our hearts that we know better. The other thing he does is appoint anyone to the priesthood. Rather than just those of the tribe of Levi that have been ordained by God, anybody can go. This is kind of like priests are us. You know, anybody that fancies a go at this, you can just join and, and give it a shot. You know, and... Sadly, we, we are in a situation in the church today when the same thing has happened. You see, those that are serving in ministry, whatever level of ministry, are those that should, or should, should be those that are appointed by God, not appointed by man. And so often we have a big thing made of ordination. Well, it's not about whether a man has ordained you. It's about whether God has ordained you to ministry. If God has ordained you to ministry, then it's great that maybe you have approval from men as well, although that's not really important. But the real issue is, has God ordained you? If God has ordained you to the ministry that he's called you to, well then that's good. And that's what God had done with the Levites. But if God hasn't ordained you to a particular ministry, then don't try stepping into those shoes. But of course this was the the problem that was occurring here. 
And also he invented a feast in the eighth day of the month. Uh, this was again just to stop the people trying to go down to Jerusalem and celebrate there. So he decides he's going to come up with his own feast. I mean, this is amazing because how people fell for this, I don't know. Because if you look at the feasts of Israel, they were based upon real events that had happened. The Passover was a real event. You know, the Feast of Tabernacles was something that they were remembering. How do you invent a new feast and remember something that hasn't actually happened? It's just it's a ludicrous kind of suggestion. But nevertheless, this is what he does. And of course, we see Jeroboam just fall into iniquity. And that leads us very nicely then into chapter 13, which is where we're picking up now. So we read verse 1 of chapter 13. And behold, there came a man of God. Now I'll just highlight that because what we're going to see is 15 times in this short section here, this individual is called a man of God. Don't be under any illusion that this wasn't a man of God. God wants you to know that this was a man of God. This was somebody who was godly, who loved God, who cared about the things of God, who wanted to get it right. So there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord. Unto Bethel. So he's being obedient. He's felt God's call in his life. He's doing something that certainly wouldn't have been easy. Going up to confront a king. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine God saying to you, I want you to go and speak to the king and tell him he's wrong. Could you imagine? You know, you'd be thinking, that, that's, that's not God, Lord. That's, that's not you. I can't hear you, Lord. You know, you'd be maybe like Jonah trying to find a boat that you can get in and flee, go to a different direction. But nevertheless, this prophet is confident enough in his own walk and relationship with God that he's heard God and that God has given him this message to go and speak to Jeroboam. And we're told, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Jeroboam wasn't a priest. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He was from Ephraim. And yet he's stepping into an office that wasn't his to burn incense. See, he's going through the motions But of course, without God now as the object of that worship and as the inspiration for that worship, it was just empty and meaningless. You see, God has got to be the object of worship, the one who we worship. But more than that, he's got to be the inspiration for that worship. There's many believers, in inverted commas, that still observe religious practices, but it's become very empty. I was uh, looking for a quote, I couldn't find it during the week, but I believe it was Tozer that made some comment along the lines of that his view was that after many, many years of preaching in churches all over the world, but particularly in reference to America, he said he's convinced that the majority of the people in the churches are not saved. That was the view of Tozer. And I think it's you know interesting because we look around, we see so many churches with so many people that are very devout but are they genuinely saved are they born again now of course we know that there are many churches that are full of wonderful believers and we're going to no doubt be surprised on the day of the rapture as we look around and we see so many souls and people that we probably didn't even expect to see and we're going to be surprised to see what God has done, the work of grace in people's lives. You know, and it's not for us to, to judge. You know, the Bible makes that very clear. That there will come a day when God will bring to light the thoughts and intents of the heart. Because that's the issue. Marla was 
talking to me yesterday uh, about somebody and I was saying, do you think they're a Christian or not? And she was saying she didn't think they, they were and we had a chat about it. And I said, you know, uh, this was just a, a celebrity uh, individual. And, and we were saying that you know, ultimately we don't know. It's the Lord that, that knows the hearts of people. And sometimes by people's outward appearance and demeanor and so on, you can't necessarily tell. But nevertheless, we know for a fact, because we've been there, we've seen that an awful lot of people that attend church don't actually know Jesus. And it's such a sad thing. And this is exactly what was going on in Israel. People had got into religion. And they were kind of comfortable with that. Because they could live their lives, they could do what they want. But then they had that religious bit to tag on that was kind of like the, so everything's okay. And this was a situation. And now into this environment, God sends his man, his prophet. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. This is an incredible prophecy, because this unnamed prophet that God has sent now to speak to Jeroboam is prophesying of an event that won't actually take place for another 300 odd years. In fact, it's about 300 years before, uh, Jerob- before uh, Josiah would be born. And it's probably about 325 years before the event spoken of here actually takes place. And he's not just speaking of something that might happen. He's saying this is going to happen and he tells us who it is that's going to do it. It's an incredible prophecy. But how do you think this made Jeroboam feel? As he's there, no doubt surrounded by many of the worshippers. And this prophet just barges onto the scene. He doesn't have a backstage pass. He just goes in. And suddenly declares that God is going to bring judgment. The prophecy, actually, we see fulfilled in two kings. And as we carry on our journey, if the Lord tarries and we move into two kings, we'll see this ourselves. But we read 2 Kings 23, verse 15 onwards. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. And by the way, that's the title this individual gets. For eternity, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, has this little tag after his name, who made Israel to sin. And what a responsibility we have in the lives of others. And we read, has made both that, uh, that altar and the high place, he broke down and burned the high place and stamped it small to powder and burned the grove. And as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchres that were there in the mountain, and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchres and burnt them upon the altar. You see, this is even a kind of an afterthought. He's about to go, he's leaving, and suddenly notices some graves nearby. No doubt, kind of cut into the rock and so on. And so he sends his men in there to go and get these bones, and he put them on the altar, and they burn them. But so they pollute it. The whole idea of this is that they're going to defile this place. According to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Speaking back of the individual we're just looking at, this prophet now. So that we see that fulfillment some 300 years after the event. Verse 3 says, And he gave a sign the same day. So this prophecy isn't just as something's going to happen in the future. There's something that's going to happen right now. Saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And again, we'll see that fulfilled in just a matter of moments. 
And it came to pass that when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him! And his hand which he put forth against him dried up, so that he could not pull it into him again. So his hand is stuck in this position. As he's commanding his men to go and capture him and grab him, whatever, suddenly his hand is just locked in position. And we're told it dries up so it withers. So what it looked like, we don't know. But this is not a, a comfortable experience for Jeroboam. You know, no doubt pride has got the better of him here because he just feels probably humiliated that this is happening. <laughs> and it's interesting how... People are so reluctant to be corrected. You know, Jeroboam probably already knows in his heart that he's wrong, that what he's doing is not godly. And somebody comes speaking with the authority of God and immediately kind of putting his fingers in his ears, I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear what you've got to say. You know, it's a strange situation that we find ourselves in, isn't it? That we don't want to hear when people speak the truth to us. You know, and people in the world we sometimes share the gospel with, how they just don't want to hear, they don't want to listen. You know, you probably have in your family, certainly uh, in my um, extended family, there's people I know who just do not want to talk about God. You know, they bring the subject up and they will not entertain it. They just, they're not interested. You know, and of course, deep down, we know that there's that conscience that God has placed there within everybody. That conscience that speaks and testifies to the reality of the fact that there is a creator. That we are accountable to that creator God. Again, pride is the root of sin. You know, We see it, of course, with Satan himself. We're told that it was pride that led Satan to fall. We've looked already that way back in the Garden of Eden, Satan originally was in the garden as the anointed cherub. Every precious stone was his covering. He was a beautiful, beautiful angelic being. And no doubt as God is going through this work of creation, and creating all these wonderful things, of course the world, and the separating the seas and the land, then we start to get the vegetation, and then the animals are created. Satan's there, just like we see Haman in the book of Esther. Well, whom does the Lord want to honour other than me? You know, And then suddenly God creates man in his own image, and says... This is the one I want to honour. And Satan's furious. Satan, from that point, has such a hatred for mankind and sets himself about trying to usurp man and to claim title of the earth. And of course, that's what happens as a result of the fall by deceiving Eve and Adam then joining in this situation as well. They forfeit their rights to the earth. And Satan, we're told in scripture, is the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. And when Jesus in Luke chapter 4 is tempted in the wilderness, Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't say, well, they're not yours to give. Jesus recognizes that for now, those kingdoms have been given over to Satan. Of course, ultimately, they will be reclaimed by Jesus, who is a kinsman of Adam. And just as we see with the land grants, with Israel and so on, that somebody who was able and willing could purchase back the land. And Jesus does that with his blood. And the book of Revelation very much is the account of how Jesus will purchase back planet Earth and claim it back from Satan. Again, pride being the root of sin. And Jeroboam here, this situation, he's now carved out this kingdom for himself and he's established himself as this king with this worship going on, all these things around him. 
Psalm 105, verse 15, though, tells us, the Lord says, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. God clearly, true to his word, is stepping in here and protecting this prophet that's come to speak. And so we carry on. Let's pick up the next verse, verse 5. And the altar also was rent and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Now that had been just moments ago that he said this is going to happen and suddenly without human hand the altar just splits. One of the commentaries actually suggests that the word rent here uh, doesn't just mean split in two as such which we may perceive it to be but it's kind of almost just dissolves into powder absolutely destroyed and the ashes that are on the top from the sacrifices just pour out and go everywhere on the floor. Verse 6 carries on. And the king, says Jeroboam, answered and said unto the man of God, um, <laughs> Excuse me, remember his hand's still stuck out there all with and he's looking at it thinking this is the problem. Saying, uh, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God. Notice he says the Lord thy God. What a shame because not that long ago it was the Lord his God. But he's moved himself away now by his own choice. Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me. That my hand may be restored again, please. And that's exactly what the entreat in the Hebrew, the implication is, please, would you do this? You know, again, it's funny how we cry out to God when we're in trouble. You know, when things are going well, we're quite happy to walk our own path, but suddenly there's a problem, and then we need God. And then we're like, oh Lord, if you do this for me, then I'll I'll serve you forever, you know. And people do that in the world so often. Even as Christians, sometimes we find ourselves doing those kind of things when we're reminded through trials and tribulations how much we need God. But we need God every day. And we're told, And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again and became as it was before. Well, I'm sure Jeroboam's heartbeat started to slow down. It must have been racing and suddenly his hand's back to normal and no longer was he saying, grab that man. In fact, his tune changes totally. He says, the king said unto the man of God, come home with me, buddy, friend. Refresh thyself and I'll give you a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, if thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. See, God had given him another instruction. That was, go, deliver your message, and get out of there. And to be told, verse 10, So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Now, this would be a great conclusion if we just now moved into the next chapter but we don't because we have a very bizarre situation now verse 11 carries on now there dwelt an old prophet notice in Bethel you've got to ask yourself the question how could this prophet somebody who apparently serves God dwell in a place like Bethel where there is so much rebellion going on, there is so much that is displeasing to God, and he's right there in the midst. Why didn't God choose this man? He's right there, could have saved on travel expenses and all sorts. Well, clearly this man was content just to 
serve God on the odd occasion and the rest of the time living his own life, his own way. We're told, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done. It's easy to, to miss the point here that the sons clearly had been there. What were his sons, the prophet's sons, doing at a place where somebody who wasn't a priest was offering up sacrifice which wasn't ordained by God on an altar that hadn't been ordained by God to a golden calf? What were his sons even doing there? But then nevertheless they come... And they tell all the works that have been done that day in Bethel, and the words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. And their father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. So as now this prophet is starting to head back, he's going back a different way, but these sons of this other prophet now have seen him go. And they say, Oh, well, he went this way. I wonder if it's just jealousy that motivates him now. You know, this is kind of one of those situations that he's probably sitting there thinking, why wasn't I chosen? Why did God send a prophet from somewhere else? You know, that kind of natural pride in us would say, well, you know, this is, this is my town. You know, this is my church. You know, why, why is somebody coming here? Surely, surely I should have been asked to do this. So maybe it is jealousy now that's provoking him to, to try and chase after this man and to, to talk to him as he's going to do. And he said unto his son, Saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. So, interesting situation, because we've got this prophet now that's come, according to the word of the Lord, he's delivered God's message, he's been obedient absolutely up until this point, he's been offered bribes by Jeroboam, come home for tea, and I'm going to give you lots of goodies, rejects all of that and he starts to travel home but now we find him sat and resting i just wonder why this is why wasn't he just pursuing getting on his journey getting out of there you know why just sitting and resting well i suspect he was just drained and tired after ministry you know you may have been there and experienced this that sometimes when you serve god and you've been giving out in the work and service of the lord Sometimes you come to that place where you've just drained. You know, you, you've given. And it's not that God hasn't provided, because all the time you've been serving, God has supernaturally been strengthening you. But then you come to that place after the ministry, and you sit, and you just try to unwind. You just, just chill out for a while, I suppose. But you know, this is one of our most vulnerable times. And it's not that God doesn't understand this. And I think very often God ordains these moments. Because these are such an important time in our lives. You see, I think God ordains moments like this. Unless we should be exalted. You see, there's there's two kind of situations that can occur very often. After you've served God in any way whatsoever... You know, it could be that maybe you've been out on the street and you've been evangelizing, you've been witnessing, and it may have gone great. Or you may feel like you've thoroughly messed up and you just don't deserve to be called a Christian. You could be just out in your normal daily lives and you get an opportunity to speak to somebody and you, it goes really well, or you just didn't say something at all and you feel bad about it. It could be that maybe... You're trying to do something within your family that's godly, that's spiritual. Maybe getting together for a time of prayer as a family. And you feel really elated by those things. But then sometimes afterwards you just feel down again. 
You know, and there's a whole number of experiences that, that we could probably think of in our own personal lives. Spurgeon wrote uh, quite a lot on depression. He suffered from depression, not in a suicidal kind of way. But he wrote uh, a fantastic sermon, or spoke, taught a sermon that's been transcribed since, um, to pastors. And he said this, and this is just, uh, in many ways this applies to all of us in, in some capacity. But he says, ours is more than mental work. It is heart work. The labour of our inmost soul. So when our heart is breaking, we must labour with a broken instrument. Preaching is our main work, and preaching is heart work, not just mental work. So the question for us is not just, how do you keep on living when the marriage is blank, when a child has run away, when the finances don't reach, the pews are bare and friends are forsaking you. The question for us is more than, how do you keep on living? It's, how do you keep on preaching? It's one thing to survive adversity. It's something very different to keep on preaching Sunday after Sunday, month after month, when the heart is overwhelmed. And you can apply that to your own life because I think there is certainly the, the pastors I know, you know, the experiences we share. There are times in Sunday afternoon is a very common time where you just collapse. You just you, you've been giving out during the morning, and you just come to that place you want to switch off, and you know it may be. Sometimes pride takes over. It may be that things have gone really well. And you start thinking, this is good, isn't it? Or it may be this the absolute reverse of that. Maybe a few unkind words or a few ill-chosen words or something, and it can just destroy you. But it's not just about me in that situation. You're all in situations. You know, We're all in positions where we are serving as ministers for God. We minister one to another. And when we give out sometimes... Very often, following that, there's this moment where we become so vulnerable, so open to the attacks of the enemy. It's then more than ever that we probably need each other to be praying for each other, to encourage each other, to help each other, support each other. You know, Galatians 6 verse 2, bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what we should be doing. Anyway, as a result of this situation, he's sad, he's resting, this other prophet then comes and finds him. And we read verse 15. Then he said unto him, Come home with thee and eat bread. And he said, so this is the, the first prophet. He says, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee. Neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. Again, just reiterating what God has said. Very clear instructions. But then our second prophet says, He said unto him, I am a prophet also, just as you are. <laughs> Actually, not quite just as this individual. but And an angel spoke unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that then you may eat bread and drink water. And then we're told, editorial comment, but he lied unto him. Again, was it pride? I don't know what it was that motivated this individual to do this, but we're reading Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. 
Paul speaking to the Galatian Christians and says, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. You know, we don't take messages from angels unless it really is from God. Now God certainly uses angelic beings to deliver messages, no question. But God will never contradict something he's already said. God's word doesn't contradict itself in the instructions that God gives to his people. And God had given his prophet a very clear instruction. And now this second prophet comes with something contradictory. And as we're told, he lied unto him. You know, a number of false religions, cults have started by supposed visitations, appearances of angels. Mormonism is a case in point. But so many of them, you know... Supposed angelic beings have turned up on the scene and said something. And people end up trusting those things more than they trust the word of God. And so he went back with him. And did eat bread in his house and drink water. You know, without being discerning, without thinking, hang on a minute. Why would God change his mind? He just goes with this man because he says He's a prophet. You know, sometimes the people that appear to be close to us can sometimes be very dangerous. Paul, when he is converted, we're told he didn't confer with flesh and blood. But immediately he goes away, goes down into Arabia. I believe he went to Mount Sinai to try and unravel the things that God, God had already showed him and was revealing to him. But he didn't go and say, what do you think I should do? You know, because the danger is the people that are close to us often will say things that are not spiritual, not because of their intent to deceive us, because they may look out for our well-being as they perceive it, but it may not be what's right for us spiritually. You know, even Peter, and Jesus rebukes him, he says, get behind me, get behind me, Satan. This is to Peter. You know, sometimes those that are close, just as this individual here, will listen to in an unguarded fashion. You know, we need to realise that we need to be spiritually discerning at all times. And it came to pass as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the prophet that brought him back. So now, the prophet that lives in Bethel, the one that hadn't been chosen to go and speak, now God does speak to him. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but came back and has eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchres of thy fathers. I kind of wonder whether this second prophet suddenly kind of like, Did I just say that? Because you just kind of get the impression that the Lord just takes over there. And the Lord is speaking through him. The Holy Spirit is just working. And this individual just becomes a mouthpiece. And suddenly he's like, did I really just say that? Well, yes, he did say that. Interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, it just says there that, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. You know, this is the situation here. That this individual, this, this first prophet that's come up from Judah, he should have been faithful. He should have trusted God. He shouldn't have allowed himself to be deceived and led away. You know, he was a steward. He'd been given a job to do. And he didn't carry it out. 
Let's just read on and we'll make some more comments. Verse 23, And he came to pass after he'd eaten bread and after he'd drunk that he saddled for him the ass to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. Um, and uh, when he was gone, a lion met him in the way and slew him. His carcass was cast in the way and the ass stood by him. Interesting that the lion just leaves the donkey alone <laughs> but eats the man. And the lion also stood by the carcass and now the lion and the donkey sit there having a chat just over this body of this prophet and behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way, and the lion standing by the carcass. <laughs> Look, it's my dinner. And it was told in the city where the old prophet dwelt. So now word gets back to this second prophet of all that's happened. You know, this is the, the real problem here. Well, let me just get you to exercise your brains for a moment. What impact did his disobedience have? Did it really matter? Yeah, okay, a few people walk by and see that he died and so on. But of course the story then has got back to the prophet, so no doubt the, pro- the word has got back to other people. Probably the word's going to get back to Jeroboam. So what's Jeroboam going to think when he hears this? That this prophet that had come to proclaim God's word has been killed by a lion. What would you think? Huh. <laughs> So it really wasn't from God after all. I don't understand the hand thing. I don't know really what happened there. But huh, that wasn't of God, was it? Oh, I'm okay then. I'll carry on as I was before. And that's exactly what happens. You see, it totally discredits this prophet's witness. Because he didn't trust God. Because although up until a point he'd been faithful, in a moment when nobody was looking, he let his guard down. And it all went wrong. You see, what difference was there between Jeroboam and this prophet? There's no difference. You see, Jeroboam had disobeyed the word of God and had put himself in this predicament. This prophet has done the same. You see, it doesn't matter whether you disobey God in a big thing or a little thing. If you're disobeying God, it's still disobedience. It will still have ramifications it will still have effects way beyond the area that we would like it to you see ultimately here god was not honored in the eyes of the people because of the disobedience of this promise prophet because once again he'd been faithful up to a point but then he let his guard down and he hadn't trusted god he'd listened to man to man's words man's wisdom you see, people's impression of God will be influenced by our lives. You know, we are there to bring glory and honor to God by the way we live our lives. We are called to be ambassadors. You know, when you look at an ambassador, they're representative of their king or the realm that they come from. Well, that's you and I. We're representative of our king. Our king is Jesus. And wherever we go, we are representative. This is why in scripture we're told to give no appearance of evil. Not even just, it's not that, you know, yeah, but that's okay. But even if people may think that it's wrong, don't do it. Don't allow people's impression of God to be shaped by the way you live. It's, we were talking about this, we had a great study yesterday morning at the men's prayer breakfast. And we were looking... In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great passage that talks about love and so on. But we were talking about 
the impact our, our witness has on others and how we should be a godly example. And one of the worst things to hear, and maybe you've heard these things, I have, it's horrible, but when somebody says, oh, I'm surprised you do that, I thought you were a Christian. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? Or, oh, I didn't think you'd behave like that as a Christian. Or whatever else. And if we're honest, we've probably been there at some point. What a horrible place. It's just like Peter in the courtyard, isn't there? Yeah, this young girl. You're one of his followers, aren't you? No, I don't know him. And suddenly the cockerel crows. How Peter's heart must have sunk at that moment. There's Jesus about to go and die on a cross to pay for his sin. And Peter couldn't even be bold enough to say, yes, I follow Jesus. What a impact we have by the way that we live. And again, just this prophet, all the good that he'd done, effectively is now undone. And when the prophet that brought him back from the way heard thereof, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient unto the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him unto the lion, which has torn and slain him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke unto him. And he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle me the ass. And they saddled him. And he went and found his carcass cast in the way, and the ass and the lion standing by the carcass. The lion had not eaten the carcass, nor torn the ass. Donkey's very pleased at that, of course. And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God and laid it upon the ass and brought it back. And the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. <laughs> and he came to pass after he had buried him that he spoke to his son saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre where in the man of God is buried and lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. This prophet recognizing that it was God's word, that God is still going to fulfill his word, even though this individual has been disobedient. You know, that's the thing. God will still do what he's going to do. You won't derail God's plans. But what pain we bring to our own lives when we're disobedient. You see, he knew it, that this was going to happen. But this is no doubt, as I said a moment ago, given Jeroboam license to carry on in rebellion. And I say no doubt because we're actually told categorically in verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way. You know, what a difference this one man could have had if only he'd have trusted and been obedient to God all the way through. If he hadn't have just sat down to chill out. If he'd have just kept on going. I'm sure God would have given him the strength. Such a dangerous, dangerous time for us. And we're told, after this thing... 
After all of that, what we just looked at, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way. You know, this prophet, had he have gone back faithfully to Judah, what difference it could have made to the northern kingdom. Jeroboam may have totally repented and turned around, destroyed the calves in Bethel and Dan, set the people on a godly course. He could have become such a great king, even after the mistakes he'd made. You know, we read with a number of kings of Israel how at the end of their lives, they did get things sorted. Manasseh, who's the worst king in the history of Judah, at the end of his life repents. You know, and his own son follows the way he'd been during his earlier lives, but his grandson who no doubt had been influenced by the end of Manasseh's life. Josiah by name, by the way. His grandson becomes one of the best kings in all of Judah's history of kings. There's only five good kings. So Jeroboam returns not from his evil way but made a gain of the lowest of the people priests of the high places whosoever word he consecrated him and he became one of the priests of the high places and this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam even to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth we're told in Galatians 6 verse 7 Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You know, we see it so often, but God, this is, this is a spiritual law, just like gravity. You know, you can't cheat gravity. You can't cheat this law. Jeroboam, forever, as I said earlier, becomes known as Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. We'll see that title applied to him so, so often as we go through. And we'll see it come back. The next chapter we'll look at next week. We'll see even in his own family how his own disobedience just causes so much pain. And once again, that prophet, what a shame that he didn't fulfill and do all that God had called him to do. We look at the kings of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the first one who made all Israel to sin. His son, Nadab, will become king. We'll see this. We'll pick this up next week. But then, only just for two years, and then we have a change of dynasty. And then Baashik becomes king for a while, and issues there, we'll look at these things. And then his son, just for a couple of years, and then we change again. His Zimri, and then there's a, just, just for one week, actually. Uh, Tibni kind of then takes over from him, and then his son... Omri becomes just a terrible king. His son Ahab even worse. And we just see this downward spiral. Jehoram is almost good, has potential to be good, but no. And we get through Jehu. It's promised that because of his faithfulness to God in destroying, getting rid of the line of Ahab, Jehu is told that his children, his descendants will sit on the throne to the fourth generation. Well, God is true to his word because they do. And this is Zechariah here. Thus sit on the throne with just six months and then another change of dynasty. And then we come down towards the end of the, the kingdom when they've taken captive by Assyria. It's such a mess. It's such a tragedy. What difference that prophet could have made had he been obedient? We don't know. 
But what difference can you make if in the next moment when you're at home or wherever you are and there's nobody watching, there's no real pressure, and maybe you're just unwinding, it's then you need to be on guard. It's then you need to realize that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You know, there's no coincidence that we find a lion that is used there because that is the impression and the description we're given of Satan. A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's what he wants to do. And Satan's probably not going to come at you when everything's going well, when you're in the middle of serving him in some wonderful way. But the moment the pressure's off, well, that's when you need to watch. How we need God's grace every moment of every day. You know, the southern kingdom is much better overall, but there's still only five good kings in all of that. Notice this individual. We spoke about him earlier. This is going to be the man some 300 years on from this point is going to go and destroy that altar, fulfill the word that God had given. This young man is influenced by Manasseh, as I said earlier, the worst king in Israel's history. And yet, in the end of his life, he repents. And this young man, seeing what impact this has had on his granddad, he probably wasn't aware of some of the things earlier in his life. But this young man becomes one of the best kings, brings such a revival to the nation. And as part of that revival, goes and destroys this altar in Bethel and so on. The point of all of this really is that it does matter. You know, whether people are watching you, whether they're not watching you. Satan would love to discredit your witness and your walk for God. So we need to pray for each other, people. You need to pray for me. I need to pray for you. We need to encourage each other and support each other. This isn't an easy road that we're taking together. But the rewards, the blessings are just so wonderful. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time we've just been allowed to sit and soak in your word. And Lord, we just, sometimes Lord is so sick with our own lives, the way we allow things to happen, that we look back and just can't believe we did. But Jesus, we thank you that although we are surprised at ourselves sometimes, you are never surprised. There's nothing that in our lives takes you by surprise because you went to the cross knowing what we were like. And it was there that you bled and died for us. It was while we were yet sinners that God the Father commended his love toward us in allowing Jesus to die. So Father, we thank you for what you did. Jesus, we thank you. And thank you that you've not left us as orphans, but you've given us your Holy Spirit. And you've given us the church that we can be here to bear each other's burdens. Lord, help us to recognize that this sin does so easily ensnare. That Satan is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And as we grow in knowledge and grace, as we strive to be holy because you are holy, as you do this work in us, and Lord, recent weeks we've been seeing you move in this fellowship, as we see these things, this call, Lord, and the, for the ladies that will no doubt affect the men for personal revival, 
Oh Lord, help us to recognize there's going to be times of quiet. And it will be in those times that more than ever we need your grace. So Lord, we pray that you will establish and strengthen us. Just as those pillars in the temple, Boaz and Yakin, to establish and strengthen, how we need that. And Lord, to be like David, wanting to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life, never wanting to take time out. Lord, impress these things upon our hearts and teach us yet further by your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.